Welcome back to Bammer and Me. You're listening to the second part of my interview with Michaela Griffo. Michaela is a visual artist and a longtime civil rights activist who is one of the few remaining links between the LGBTQ community of today and the early one that arose out of Stonewall. What was the reason for the schism between the gay male and lesbian communities, you know, spanning the decade of the 70s? And, and can you recount how exclude women from participating in the, was it the second March, 1971? Yeah, the 1971 March. Right. And, and, and as a result of that whole experience, why the Dykes on Bikes have been the first group to march in every subsequent New York City LGBTQ pride parade. What happened was, by 1970, the late 70s, after the first gay pride march, um, a group called Gay Activists Alliance became very active. And they wanted absolutely nothing to do with women, nothing to do with drag queens or poor Sylvia or, or you know, Marsha. So what happened was, um, it all culminated. They had a big clubhouse. They used to have dances there. It was a big brownstone. It was a firehouse. I'm sorry. That was a firehouse. I heard about that. I'm down on Wooster Street. And of course, every Saturday night, the whole idea was guys would be down there. And, you know, it was for men only, boys, no girls allowed. And uh, they had one. Um, token woman, Jean O'Leary, who was a member of the GAA. And whenever they had to go on television, Jean, they pulled Jean O'Leary, but we weren't fooled by that. But the culmination of it was, and it was heartbreaking, was in 1973, um, well, first I'll tell 19, what happened in 1971, of course, they did not want women in the Gay Pride March. It was the Gay Pride March, not the Gay and Lesbian March. And they were adamant about that, that they were, you know. So what happened was when the march, the day of the march, every single dyke came on a motorcycle and they brought all their friends on the back. And all these dykes showed up on motorcycles and they went right to the front of the march. And that's why to this day, the first group to go out before anybody else is dykes on bikes. And after that, women did march. Um, but that was that history. But what the ugly history was, by 1973, it was really bad. The lesbians and the gay guys weren't even speaking to each other. It was pretty bad. And so we had a big rally. That year, the gay rally took place in Washington Square Park. Knows we marched from uptown, downtown. They would alternate every year, first up, then down. Okay, so now we get to Washington Square Park and the rally. And so all the guys are out there. And, um, you know, first person on the stage was Jean O'Leary. And they boo, boo, boo. So they booed her off the stage. And then Sylvia got up there and grabbed the microphone. And she was furious. And she said, you know, your brothers and your sisters in prison, you know, write to me every day. And you don't care. He said, I lost my home. I've had my nose broken. I've been... You know, I've been put in jail for your rights and they're booing like crazy. They won't even let her talk. And, you know, recently I saw a, a talk about, you know, not giving us our history. Um, there was there is a documentary that was at the Gay Film Festival this year. And what they did was they showed that clip and then they 
the next thing they show was men standing and applauding. And so I wrote to the right in, I put right in it's on their Facebook page for the, for the um, new fest. I said, you know, I, it was a wonderful history. I said, except for that, I said, you made it look like they were applauding Sylvia. I said, if anything, I said how they booed her off the stage and she tried to commit suicide. You know, she left the movement. That was it. She left, I don't remember where she went, but she tried to kill herself. And it wasn't until many years later that she came back, but it was Marsha who saved her life. Um, so I left the movement as well at that point. I was so disgusted by what I saw because I loved Marsha and I loved Sylvia. They were really a big part of the lesbian. <laughs> they come to the dances, whatever. So I was disgusted. I left politics um, and I didn't go back. I did not march again until Anita Bryant opened her mouth in 1977. And it was the largest march ever was that year when the evangelicals, you know, oh, you know, <laughs> whatever, the moral majority, whatever. It was also the march that I, I was the most memorable other than the first march to me because of what happened in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral. I, that year I marched with gay Catholics because I was so angry about what the evangelicals and the, all these, you know, hater, God hates fags and all this bullshit. So I was marching with Catholics, with priests and not all these people, all these Catholics. And we were coming up to the cathedral and I said to everybody, listen, I've been in these kind of marches before. Everybody just get really close. We're probably going to get pelted with oranges. They're going to, the, the people who, you know, stood right across from the cathedral were all the anti-gay groups and whatever. So we're marching, marching, and we get in front of the cathedral and there were people all in front of the, just on the steps everywhere. And all of a sudden at once they unfurled their flags and their banner. I cry about this every time. And they were Catholics that had come from all over the country to support us. And that is why, Mike, no one was ever allowed to stand on the cathedral steps again for any gay march after that because of what Catholics had done. <laughs> Talk about a strong reaction. Yeah, that was it. From then on, police lines went up around the cathedral and no one was ever allowed to stand on the steps of the cathedral again. So you left the movement in 73? 73, and then I went about my life. I, you know, I probably went to certain things, but I was no longer actively working in the gay movement. It was all guys as far as I was concerned. They could care less about. I think I got more involved in women's issues again. Yeah. And so then, for reasons that we've discussed about separately, but there's not a lot of time to go into. You basically kind of sank into some alcoholism and drug use, right? Yes. No, I, it, it unfortunately, yes. Uh, that had nothing to do with my being gay. It had to do with my family history. Um, and, you know, when I, from the time I had that first drink or drug, I was off to the races until 1984 when I got sober at uh, and thank God, you know, the Gay Community Center here in New York, it was called the Gay Community Center. I don't know what they call it now. But um, 
that was opened in March of 1974, and I got sober in April of 74. So it was wonderful, you know, because I, I had been going to these straight meetings, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't deal with this. So when I read, oh, my God, there's gay meetings at this place called the Gay Community Center, oh, I rushed right down there. And of course, as you know now, uh, I my first my first program was uh, a program for narcotics abuse, and uh, you know one night we'd say, "Oh, where's Jose? Oh, Jose, he's got a sore throat. He'll be here next week. Next week, where's Jose? Oh, he died, died. And this was going, you know, where's where's you know Frank and Joe and you know all these? Oh, he got a cold. He's he got pneumonia. He'll be fine. He'll be boom, 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 boom. They're dropping like flies." We have no idea what's killing these men. And uh, and then, of course, the word, you know, gay cancer, grid, you know. And that's when I became very, very active in taking care of my my partners, my friends in, in, the, in the recovery program that I was in. And the 80s, you know, I, I wanted to join ACT UP, but honest to God, I was so busy being a buddy, cooking dinners, visiting people in the hospital, that I didn't have time to go to any organized, you know, what these meetings that were taking place at the center or whatever. But all of my lesbian friends were, were it, it just, it brought the whole, you know, it was like, forget about any other problems we might have with each other, there something is killing our brothers in this community. And that was it, that we basically became the caretakers, the nurses, the cooks, the buddies, taking them to the hospital, sitting with them. I would tell how many men I sat with as they died. I It just was. You told me there were maybe 30 men and four women in your program. Does that sound about right? No, there were only two, about two women, <laughs> me and another woman. Maybe there might have been a third one, but mostly in my particular, what was called a home group, which means that's the group you go to every week. You know everybody. I mean, there's lots of groups in, in the city, especially in a city the size in New York, but the one at the gay community, the two, it was called the 208 group. Um, you know, they were mostly, they were gay and they were IV drug users. They had the double whammy. And many of them were partnered. And if I recall correctly, you said almost all of them passed away because of the disease. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By the time, by the time I had my 10th anniversary, uh, which was in um, 2004, my entire home group was dead. 10th anniversary of what? Oh, uh, being in a recovery program. <laughs> that would have been 20th anniversary now. What, 1994? Oh, I thought you said 2004. Okay. 1994. My entire group was dead. So in a kind of a bizarre way, AIDS was responsible not only for bringing gay men and women together again because of the generosity of the lesbian community and nurturing and nursing and supporting us through that illness, but also because of our fight against the, the mainstream against society and against being excluded and, and the lack of attention by the Reagan administration. The drug companies. I mean, it was back to the streets again, men right. and women. We, but I'm we, saying we, that, we, that elevated our visibility and almost is really what gave our community power. So we had to go through death to find, re, to find reunion in the community with women and men. I always said that was what made the gay community visible was that suddenly, oh God, Uncle Frank is gay? 
oh my God, our son is gay? Our cousin, our brother, our sister, you know, it was like, wow. And not only gay, dead. Dead, yeah, gay and dead. But mostly the visibility that these kids, these poor kids that couldn't tell their parents that they were gay, had to go home and say, I'm dying. And the parents, a lot of them threw them out. I can't tell you how many people I sat with in the hospital when no, no parent ever showed up. I mean, they basically, if it weren't for lesbians, a lot of these men would have, and, and their partners as well. And also uh, my friend Eric Sawyer, who co-founded ACT UP with Larry Kramer, they created a housing program to take care of all those people who were homeless. Right. Yeah. That was another reason I went to social work school as well, because one might, I just remember when my very best friend, lover was was dying in the hospital when he had great hopes that it was going to be all right he was going to live whatever and I remember we walked into and I got there a little bit early I used to meet and we used to go there almost every night and sit with his partner and the nurse came up to me and she said the social worker was here today to see him do you want me to tell you know his friend or do you I said I'll do it and so I knew that what that meant when they said the social worker was here, it was that person was not going to live much longer. Um, you know, I remember being in Fire Island, in the Pines, at my coffee table with my housemates on July 2nd, I believe it was, 1981, reading that Friday edition of the New York Times where Dr. Altman, I think Larry Altman, wrote the article, Gay Cancer Found in Men. And us thinking, I wonder if this will have any impact on us, because it was just a, an idea at that stage. I, I used to be the advocate all the time out of San Francisco. And in the back, there suddenly, it was long before, it was before 81, I know it was like 79. There were all these obituaries of young men. And I remember saying to a friend of mine at the time, there's something going on here. All these young men are dying. And that was in 79. So by the time they published that article in the, like, in the New York Times, I'm like, yeah, this is why they've all been. And we still didn't know what they were dying of. So my question is, you talked about it with me, and I've gotten the impression here that the real activity, the locus of it, in your life at least, happened after you went into recovery in 84. And all those men that you nursed really in the second half of the 80s. And in my case, my friends who died or AIDS didn't really start dying till 85, 86, 87. So if that was happening in the late 70s and we saw publicity about it in 81, what was going on from 81 to 85 or 86? Not much. People were just dying. That was it. See, I got clean and sober in 1984. And in 84, we didn't know what they, oh, he's a sore throat. Okay, he'll be in, boom, he's dead. Pneumonia, he's dead. Nobody connected it with GRID, which is what they called AIDS at the time? I think fear, did, because as far as I remember, ACT UP and all of that didn't begin till almost 90, right? Yep. 89, yep. Yep. By then, most of the people, the gay guys I knew were dead or dying. So basically we all hid in our little chambers and didn't. there wasn't a lot of news and a lot of communication about it. To compare, I mean, but it, it reminds me of when, you know, I would read these books about the Holocaust and they would say, you know, that people have been told them, listen, this is happening. They're these are not work camps. They're killing. No, no. You know, or the, or, you know, I'm, I'm German. I'm not, you know, they're not going to do anything to me. And right. 
So I think that that's what, you know, a lot of uh, gay men, uh, unfortunately, wanted to believe that it was only guys that went to the disco and were doing poppers, or it was like, you know, guys that were having like 20, 30 sex partners and and a day or whatever. And and that isn't true. There were people that it was their first time. And, you know, so, I so sad about it. And then I had a friend of mine, dear man I love, who's still alive today and thriving and love him. He said to me, Michaela, I did everything they did and more, and he never got it. So there were people who, for whatever reason, had an immunity to that virus. But, well, and uh, not to get too far afield, but someone I know who follows me on Instagram in Philadelphia had a test, and they identified a gene that supposedly made you uh, immune to the bubonic plague in the 1500s yeah, or whenever, and also now. makes you immune to HIV now. So I, I feel a, not quite as much in the camp of your friend. But, you know, I was active from 76 to 81, and I put myself in a position where I might have been exposed. And we lived in ground zero, for Christ's sake, in New York, and I didn't get it. So part of me thinks I was either very lucky or maybe I have that gene. So yeah. it is it is what it is, as they say. Because he lived in the, uh, what was that place in the, in the a pine, uh, between the pines and the grove? The sunken the meat, meadow? The meat the meat rack, thank you. He, he lived in the meat rack. So, yeah. so um, I'd like to ask you about, you know, the 21st anniversary of, uh, of, Stone, of the uh, march and how that reconnected you with your ex-fiance and that whole story. Well, for the 25th anniversary, Arthur Dong, the documentarian who went on to win an Oscar for License to Kill, which is about the killing of gays, Made a, there was a four-part series called um, A Question of Equality. And the first part was Outrage 69, where he interviewed all the original members of the Gay Liberation Run, or as many as he could, um, and, and including some people from, you know, like Joan Nessel, who started the, uh, the Lesbian History Archives. And I knew, you know, we all, you know, talked about our lives and whatever. And I knew that it was going to be shown in New York City in October. I didn't know it was being shown in San Francisco and the uh, rest of the country uh, in August. And I was out in Fire Island and I came home and my answering machine was blinking. And I pressed that button and I heard that Brooklyn accent. And I, I recognized that voice immediately. And he said, Michaela, I hope you're sitting down. He said, this is Peter. You haven't heard my voice in 25 years. He said, I want you to know I'm gay. And I live in, I, I have, he's a psychiatrist. He said, I have a practice in San Francisco. He said, and I have to see you again. And sure enough, he came to New York City and it was like no time at all. It was, it was like we had not seen each other the day before. And every year he comes. We talk on the phone all the time now. But the thing that, you know, when I, I was telling the story before that when in the 50th anniversary last year, all these young teenagers came from California on a bus or whatever. All they wanted to do was meet the Gay Liberation Front. So we told our stories, you know. And they said, does anybody have any questions? And there's dead silence. And they only have one question. And it was for me. They all wanted to know what happened to Peter. So that's what happened to Peter. But what I also told them was the interesting thing that is while I was in New York City getting my head beaten in and being called queer and put in jail, whatever, that Peter was one of those very brave psychiatrists that worked with the AMA and ultimately changed 
the, the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and removed homosexuality as a mental illness. So That was, that was in 1973. Yes, without knowing each other and what we were doing, we were both doing our thing. And you said that he was very friendly with Harvey Milk? Harvey Milk. He was very good friends with Harvey Milk. And Harvey had come to him about a week before he was murdered. And he, he had a premonition, I guess because he got a lot of death threats all the time. But he said, this time, somebody's going to, I know they're going to kill me. And sure enough, they did. Dan White with a Twinkie wow. defense. So um, in 2010, there was an article in the New York Times in which you were quoted as saying, I prefer to be an outlaw. Do you want to describe how that came out? That was, oh, I, I still get angry about that. Yes, in 2010, we had a, uh, a reunion of the Gay Liberation Front. Uh, it was 40th anniversary of Stonewall. And the New York Times sent a reporter. And I thought, oh, wow, this guy's really lucky. He's got the inside track here. Here are all the people that you know started the first Gay Pride March. Many of them were at Stonewall. But gay marriage had just been made legal. And so the only thing he asked us all, the only thing he really wanted to know about, how did I feel about gay marriage? And I said, well, I'm really glad that gays brought parity to heterosexual marriages. You know, no more you take out the garbage, I'll do the children, whatever. I said, so I'm happy for that. I said, but there are people in Oklahoma and Georgia that are having their homes burned down, their children are bullied at school. I said, we're not free until we're all free. I said, I prefer to be an outlaw, remain an outlaw. Well, next day, the article comes out, Sunday time, big, you know, and it was all about gay marriage. And then one sentence, Michaela Griffo says she prefers to remain an outlaw with no explanation whatsoever. Maybe that'll be on your tombstone someday. I hope so. That would be a great epitaph. I refer, prefer to remain an outlaw. Um, switching gears just a little bit, can you tell us about the place and meaning of art in your life? <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, how you now created, you created the now iconic poster that promoted the first gay pride march. I am your worst fear. I am our best fantasy. What underlay your often controversial work? From the time I was very small, maybe because I did grow up in an alcoholic home and you could never talk about it. You're always being told that's not what happened. Uh, you didn't see that, you know, so that I knew what I had seen. And also that I just questioned everything as a child. And, and of course, I, I was constantly drawing. That Art has always been a big part of my life. And so when, when, as I always said that, that I am your worst fear, I am your best fantasy was my first real work of public art. And that came out of the fact that even in 2019, I remember the, the um, Leslie Lohman Museum wrote an article about my work and, and my public, you know, my um, activity, gay activities. Um, and I said that even in 2019, the number one pornographic search is lesbians. And so I thought, oh, yeah, it's fine if we're, you know, you're your best fantasy, oh, lesbians, but God forbid your daughter or your wife, worse yet, should come out as a lesbian. So, you know, I'm your worst fear. 
that, oh God, you know, lesbian. So that's where that came from. And most of my artwork is about, it's things that I have seen, you know, uh, things that come out of the television, radio, whatever. And like one of, I, I did a whole series of using Disney, uh, you know, characters and whatever, where a, a perfect example was Peter Pan. I have this um, color pencil drawing where he's about to kiss Wendy. And it says, I have never been portrayed by a man or even a young, either a, or either a man or even a young boy, but you know what I am. And so do all the little girls who fall in love with me. Peter Pan was the first transgender person. And so, you know, things like that and things about, you know, we're constantly being told we can be uh, ourselves more ourselves by looking like someone else. And then we look in the mirror and we've completely lost who we are. I mean, all of these things that, you know, are heaped upon us by society, by whatever, these become the fodder for my artwork. Is there anything behind you that you did or is that? Uh, yes, that's Sleeping Beauty Awakens. It is a depiction of, there were two in, 2004, there was a show that came on television on MTV, <laughs> and it was called South of Nowhere. And it was a story of a 15-year-old girl that comes to, from Ohio to Los Angeles. She suspects that she's gay. She comes from a strict Catholic family. Her mother's a surgeon, and she, know, and she meets this other young girl her first day of like her second, I think she was a sophomore in high school, whatever. And this girl in Los Angeles... They never met a woman she didn't bed. And so the, it's about her. It's a, it took five seasons of how she came out and how her family tried to send her to conversion therapy. And it was just a magnificent story. At no time did they um, say, oh, it was just a dream or I wasn't really. You no, know, it was right a spot on. The two characters on the left were from one of the other most popular shows called Degrassi Next Generation. And it was about this, this particular story is Alex and Paige, the bad girl and the head of the cheerleaders and the most popular girl in school fall in love with each other. So they're the two characters because it was a very famous scene where they go to a dance together. They start dancing and Alex, the bad girl, takes the black cowboy boy hat she's wearing on her head, puts it on Paige's head, and they start dancing together, burning up the screen. She drags her out of there and pages my, my shoes. She goes, well, you're not going to need them. And they end up in bed. And so the, the right through the middle is a comic, which I created. And the comic acts like a Greek chorus. And it really is basically saying, you know, your, your generation kiss, kiss um, girls to turn each other on. We kiss each other because it feels good. You know, we're the, we're the most dangerous feminists yet. We're not into labels. You know, and in the end, um, it shows them, both of them, they're holding hands. They said, you know, Ken and Barbie are so over. I'm going to get my little sister, Ashley and, and Spencer dolls for Christmas. Those were the two characters. But the imagery I use is, is Sleeping Beauty Awakens. It's, you know, Cinderella, of course, comes upon Sleeping Beauty and, and Cinderella kissing. And of course, her wicked stepsisters, and she's like, wow, I want to get in on this. So this <laughs> is typical of one of my paintings. So, so um, you, you might call it subversive art, at least in terms yeah, of very traditional. subversive art. And I, and thank God, I was in a big show at the, um, uh, the uh, 
it was at the decor of a museum. It was uh, sentimental about uh, people who use sentimental imagery. Um, and the museum hired the largest and the most expensive intellectual property firm in the country to uh, protect me. So basically, it's um, one-time, fair-time uses because I use Disney imagery. So they can't arrest me. I can't make T-shirts or anything or multiples with it. But but uh, there was a whole series I did, including one of Tina Brandon, um, where it's, again, it's, uh, you know, uh, that's hanging over on this wall. Is uh, she's is Wendy about to kiss Peter and two little girls on the pencil part about they're like seven years old or about to kiss each other, and then the whole story of passing how in in the old days it was called passing, and and then I actually use her words because when she was murdered, I was fascinated. I I started reading everything, including the social workers' notes about Tina Brandon. And she said, you know, I don't want to be a guy. I don't want to be a dyke. I just wanted to date girls. This is all cities in Nebraska. They offered her hormone therapy. They offered her gender, blah, blah, blah. She was not transgender. She was a naive lesbian who thought she could get away with dressing as a guy. She had been sexually abused horrendously by her uncle. And that's why she felt more comfortable wearing men's clothing. So the final panel, she says, I should have just kept driving and gone to San Francisco. I would have been just another butch, but then nobody makes movies about dead lesbians. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty powerful. Yeah. All my work has got a real punch to it. <laughs> so I was very happy. I was included in the art after Stonewall show and uh, that traveled all over the country. Well, hopefully some of the listeners here will Google you and find out where they can look at more of it, maybe oh, even buy some of it. Absolutely, yeah, I was just in two shows in Minneapolis uh, right before COVID hit, and I actually went out there to talk about my work to the students there, so it was really nice. So I wanna uh, ask some, you agree with the late Vito Russo, the uh, author of The Celluloid Closet, oh, sorry? I loved Vito. I yeah. love that man. He said, when our community is no longer secret, when it is no longer ours, we are really going to miss it. Yeah. You said, gay sensibility is now indistinguishable from the mainstream. We have all been pasteurized. Is there anything we can do to tap back into our inner rebel to regain some of what made the gay community special and to feel part of something larger than ourselves that, that you might have in mind? That's a very interesting question, but I have, unfortunately, I have no answer for it. I do believe that we have all been, there was something wonderful about being gay in the seventies, you know, uh, even well, you know, well, during AIDS, all of it, there was something wonderful about having this community. We had our secret places, P-Town, you know, Fire Island. I'm sure there were other places in the South. Every, every place had its like- Our, our secret language. Our secret language, you know, it just, and it's now it's all about, you know, having babies, white picket fences, men are having, trans men are having babies with trans women, fathers. I mean, it's, it's just like, basically, I think we've, morphed into something that now, you know, trans women and lesbians are fighting with each other. Um, you know, I don't know where the gay guys are 
I really don't know what happened to them. Um, even when I go to the center, I don't feel comfortable at the gay community center anymore. I just, I feel like, first of all, I feel like, and I, I don't know how it happened, but lesbian became a dirty word again. Like you're old, it's not relevant. You're, so when I was spoke at the, um, the New York Historic Society, I introduced myself as a generic lesbian because I'm not gender fluid. I'm not binary, whatever. I'm not any of these, this word salad that I feel came out of academia, not out of our community. And I think it's really, you know, I, the other night I was on a, a panel. I wasn't on the panel. I was listening to a panel discussion from an art foundation here in New York. And I was fascinated by these young kids. They're really doing amazing work with, within their own communities. You know, there's this black woman who was working only with black trans people. There was a, a young white cisgender who uh, has a, this publication that, you know, is like, like the kind of publications with punks did in the 80s. So there's all these subcultures going on, but there's the big umbrella, gay and lesbian is gone as far as I'm concerned. I think what you're describing is as outsiders fighting the mainstream, we, we had an edge. We had something in common. Right. We felt we felt we belonged together and there was a purpose. And now that edge and that need for purpose is gone to some degree, depending on where you are in the country and in the world. And the great news is there's freedom for everybody to be themselves. And there are all these different sub identities or sub communities, but it has also led to division and the lack of any compelling glue to hold us together. Right. And it's like that whole, okay, boomer attitude, right. you know, and I feel badly because they don't know their own history. They really don't know their history. Um, and like, well, the whole thing with Marsha and Sylvia, that yes, they should be honored for what they did, not for what they didn't do, which is angering a lot of gay men. I'm telling you, it's like I get these, I don't want to get in on it because it's not my fight, you know? And I feel like, this younger generation, like when the kids came, I'll give you a perfect example. Two years ago, I went to the Gay Film Festival. There was a film called Man Made. It was about four women who became men bodybuilders. Now, long story short, out of these four men who were in relationships with lesbians, only one stayed with her partner. One lesbian stayed with her partner. At the, towards the end of the film, she starts talking about how now that you know, he's made this transformation, he's now body, you know, she's no longer attracted to him. She said that, you know, she, her, she lost her family because she was a lesbian, a lot of her friends. Uh, and this is a film made in 2000, you know, 20, what, 18, whatever. Um, and how hard it was for her to come to terms with being a lesbian and being in love with women. And she wanted now to be with a woman. The audience started to boo. This whole audience was mostly young women in their 20s and 30s booing at this lesbian talking about the reality of the fact that she still loved this person, but was not in love and wanted to be with a lesbian. 
when the question and answer period, Tia Leone was the producer. I said, Tia, I want you to be honest with me. I know you have shown this film all over the country. Was this the reaction you got when the lesbians started talking? Yes. I got up, I walked out of there, and that was it. So, again, the busload of teenagers from California, I told them that story. They said, oh, that's terrible. They shouldn't have done that. So there's like a skip between my generation and these very, very young teenagers who have only known I can be whoever I want to be. I can be a boy, I can be a girl, I can change, I can be binary fluid, I can do this, who have this really, you know, open attitude about, wow, that's all they wanted was to meet the gay liberation front. They didn't want to meet 20 and 30 year olds. They wanted to meet the people who started it all. Well, you know, I don't want to get too much into this because it's cancel culture. It's the fact that I know yeah. there's a lot of dogma among along among some people about how people should be and others shouldn't be. You know, obviously, if we could just learn to accept each other as individuals, and every individual has the right. That's to what it. I marched for. That's what right. I risked my life for. For the sissy boys and the butch gym bunnies and the lipstick lesbians and the butch truck drivers to be who they were. I didn't care what pronoun they used. I didn't care what they called them, butch, fam, whatever. I didn't care. And this is what I have found in the Generations Project is this, it's like a garden full of people with all different, you know, whatever, but we're not angry at each other. Somehow, I said to Wes Enos, this is what the future for me is, is being with people who accept you whichever way you present and they don't call you a turf or all these horrible words that are coming out of this. Just for our audience, in case they're not aware, uh, the Generations Project is a nonprofit that is aligned with what Bammer does in terms of trying to bring the generations together through storytelling. And Wes Enos, its founder, and we had our launch party together uh, two years ago at uh, the Fluid Project, a clothing store in lower Manhattan for the gender non-binary community. But uh, to take further what you said, I actually find, I, I've kind of been encouraged. I have about 13,000 followers, Bammer47, my Instagram page around the world, of really committed, impassioned, and dedicated individuals, many of them LGTB, but some allies, um, and more of them than not are younger. And the amazing thing is they are probably, I think 25% of the Gen Z and uh, millennial age LGTB community who are interested in their history, who do know, want to know where they come from. Um, but what I also find is this tremendous uh, nostalgia and romanticism for what you and I lived through, you more than me, being five years ahead of me, uh, but I have constantly have to level set for them that, yes, you did miss some amazing things, which you've just pointed to. The sense of being part of a community, right? Uh, the, the, the secret language, all that was, was, was wonderful. But you're also forgetting about the fact that we could have been tossed out of our homes and lose our jobs and put in jail and submitted to conversion therapy. And if we knew in the 70s as gay men what was coming in the 80s, we probably wouldn't have behaved the same way if we were rational. And then the 80s, on some level, you ought to be glad you missed the entire decade 
because every single time I went out and got a sore throat or a pimple, I had to go to the doctor and make sure I wasn't HIV positive. And like you, I was going to hospitals, visiting sick friends and, and funerals and wakes more often than I care to remember. So the good came with the bad. And you know what? I honestly believe that, that incredibly 40 years from now, somebody's going to tell today's youth that they wish they lived now because we always put a kind of a rose-colored glasses on the past, right? So I guess the question is, and you've already said you don't really know how to answer this, what do we do to find some commonality to reconnect us despite, without taking away all the freedoms we've discovered? I mean, I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? I'm finding it in the art community, um, the Leslie Lohman Museum here in New York City. Uh, I met some wonderful younger artists um, the Generations Project, like I say, I wonderful, lovely transgender people. Um, you know, I just think, I don't know who these really angry activists are. I don't know who they are. Um, and so I, I really kind of stay away. That's why I say I'm, I'm not really active at the Gay Community Center anymore, or, um, you know, I go to the film festival and, I, I give money, to as, as you do, to the Stonewall Archives, to the Gay Film Festival, because our culture, I, I find it in our culture what I need. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to bring the, the generations back together again. I think it's just going to be, you know, I was saying to this one woman that a friend of mine, Alexis Clements, made a wonderful film called What We Lost. And it was about... Uh, or all we have, I can't, I think it's either all we have or what we lost, but it was about all the closing of the lesbian bars all over the country. One of the things that came to light in that film was that a lot of gays are doing what I do now. I work with remote area medical. I go to the poorest parts of the country and bring free dental and free vision care to, you know, the Kentucky miners and steel workers and all of that. And I have met transgender people that live in these tiny little towns. And I have no problem talking with them. Uh, they have a lot of the women, these transgender women have a lot of the same uh, things that they're bothering them that would bother me as a cisgender woman, same interests, whatever. Um, and I was saying, you know, because there was this uh, panel discussion and I got a little bit angry at this one woman who asked, young, very young women said, why did they ever have to have women's colleges in the first place? And I like, <laughs> it exploded. But anyway, I sent a letter of apology to the, to the person who was leading it. And I said that, you know, I don't have any problem working and talking with some of these transgender people in these, you know, really poor communities, whatever, they're isolated people. I said, it's unlike some of these white, overprivileged, overeducated transgender people that I see in New York City. And that for me is the truth of it, that on a one-to-one -one basis, if you don't have this anger to begin with at lesbians or whatever it is you're so angry, because people are angry, honest to God, that's, people are just angry, period. Well, we're right. seeing that we're seeing that in our political sphere. Oh, we're seeing it everywhere. Oh, yeah. but it but it's not the kind of anger that's going to lead to anything positive. As far I'm concerned, we had an anger that we're anti-war, anti-poverty, civil rights. You know, 
Black Panthers, Young Lords, whatever. We had something that we were fighting for. What I see, and not all of them, because I could say that panel discussion the other night, I'm like, God bless, these kids are the future, at least of art, um, the art world, uh, that I don't know what is going to give these people a, a reason for, you know, a motivation for anything other than being angry and having a cornucopia of self-identities that have nothing to do with cohesion or community. You know, I get asked the question you alluded to a moment ago, you know, well, on the one hand, why do we need gay history uh, or LGBTQ history? And on the other hand, why do we need LGBTQ meeting spaces? You know, we can go anywhere. And my response is, number one, you need the history. So if we find ourselves in the same position again with Trump or anyone else taking away our rights, you'll have learned from our generation what tools we use to fight these battles and win them so you can win them again. Number two, we need places to meet because let me just give an example of women or Jews or blacks, right? The, those communities have been around and recognized and accepted a lot longer than the LGBTQ community. And yet they still need places to meet. Why? I'll give you an example from my world. Let's say I'm a 25-year-old gay man and I've married my young boyfriend recently and had our first kid and we join a country club out in Westchester County and he's parking the car and I'm arriving as a newcomer and someone comes up and introduces themselves and we start chatting, oh, where's your wife? Well, I, I'm not, I have a husband, he's out in the parking lot, I'll introduce him to you shortly. You have to come out over and over and over again, no matter where you are in life, because you're always going to be different. You will always have gone through something that most people have not gone through. And there will be moments when you want to be in places with others just like you, who have gone through the same thing, and who you don't have to explain yourself to. That's why we need gay meeting places. And some get it, some still don't agree with it. But I think, I think we have a responsibility to the next generation, and you're working at it through the Generations Project a lot. I'm doing it through Bammer to educate, to inform, to, to mentor. Um, and I don't know, we have to find a path towards bringing us all back together again, because I think if we don't, we will have lost something special. I think so too, and I think Vito was right. And you know, Marsha used to say that all the time. They're gonna try and divide us. And when they do, it's gonna be all over. She understood that from the get-go. Let me ask you one final question. Um, you know, we both share antipathy towards the use of the word queer uh -huh. to describe ourselves and our community. <laughs> I know this is going to be kind of controversial because of longstanding scars from the pejorative use of that word. Meanwhile, young LGBTQers feel we should reclaim it, taking the sting out of it. Can you share why you feel it's not wise and not possible to, for you and maybe me to achieve that end? First of all, I loved it when it was used as a badge of honor. When we're here, we're queer, get used to it. That was a queer nation. Now, the only reason that it bothers me now is that there are so many celebrities who are not even gay who call themselves queer. There's this thing, queer art. Oh, you don't have to be gay or lesbian. It's queer art, a queer sensibility. So who are these? You know, it's like when I was asked to speak, 
uh, as the, you know, you know, we were the grand marshals uh, in 2019 for the Heritage of Pride, which normally I would not have marched in, but I wanted the world to see the people that started this march. Because it's because it's become so corporatized. Yes, I, yes, I wanted, and, and the people, if you could see the films that's on YouTube and whatever, the Gay Liberation Front marching, um, eight deep screaming, thank you, thank you, thank you. Whereas the queer march, um, it's just, you know, God bless, but it's the whole idea. It's not, it's the way that word is used now. It can apply to anybody who just wants to be a little bit different. They don't necessarily have to be gay. And that bothers me because when the police were beating us over the head and throwing us in jail and he's spitting on us and kicking us, you fucking queers, you know, it would be like, it, it was, you know, it was a badge of honor at one point that we stood up and, and we, we took that word queer. We're here, we're queer, get used to it, as opposed to now, these que the queer march could be for anything. Now and it's to be an all-inclusive monitor for somebody who doesn't fit yeah. in any one of the other buckets. It's funny, you and I then basically diverge on this point, and we have the same opposition to it, but I, you know, I, I never used it with quite the same uh, badge of courage as you did, maybe because I followed a few years later, maybe because I was part of a closeted Wall Street, you know, banking sector most of the time. But for me, it was more the shame and ignominy that came with having that epithet thrown at me or others like me that was so scarring that I can't, I mean, I, I don't want to reclaim the word. I don't want to ever hear it again in the context, okay, something's queer is odd, but not me, all right? I'm not odd. I, I am who I am. And if you dare call me that, it's, it's, you know, it's a call to, to arms. So we have kind of a different reason, even if we share the same uh, opposition. Um, right. Is there I mean, anything I else that, that are in the right places? These queer, I mean, you know, Ann Northrup has been, I've known Ann since she was in college, um, you know, that they're trying to take up the banner again and be out there. And, but I don't know what it is they're fighting against. That's the thing. I don't know, you know. They've got the white picket fence, like I say, men are having babies, trans men with, with transgender women. I mean, what what more is there to fight? They, they I think there are a lot of rights that have not been given, and certainly the ones that have been are not being enacted and allowed in a lot of places still. So I, in fact, I went to both the 2019 and 2020 queer liberation marches, and even though I don't uh, really advocate the word use of the word queer, and even though I was extremely cautious throughout all of COVID, right up until June 29th, when I attended a march with 50,000 other people, heavily masked, constantly moving, um, it brought back, it evoked all the feelings that it did in my first march in 1977. Um, the camaraderie, the rebellion, the outspokenness, the anger. There were banners everywhere. There were no corporations. There was spirit. When I went to the same day to the- I'm about it too. I mean, I love that spirit. My only thing is, what are they fighting for? What, what is it exactly they're fighting for? Well, I, I don't, don't know. I don't, I don't know if they could point to one or two things, but offline, because we don't have time here, I'll be happy to send you a list of 10 things that are still worth fighting for. They're not as centralized as make me legal. 
uh, although in some ways they are. But so um, I think that deserves more of this conversation and we don't really have time, unfortunately. It goes along with my thing, I would rather prefer to be an outlaw because like I say, I go to these small towns in the South, you know, where there might be one or two, and transgender actually is right. one of the boxes people get to check when they get to see the dentist or have their eyes examined. And like I say, those are the, that's what I'm, I'm thinking about, those people and their rights, and right. their right to go to school without being bullied, no matter who they are. But right. I'm so sure that a big march in New York City is going to bring that kind what I was saying before about, you know, the movie that my friend made about what we have now is I noticed that a lot of gays in these places throughout the country, what they're doing instead of like, you know, having these angry marches, they're joining community organizations like Hispanic community organizations where they work to and homelessness or poverty in their neighborhoods. And that was the spirit that the Gay Liberation Front had. We would work with intersectionality. We started it. We're not free until we're all free. So it did make me happy, some of these marches I've seen where with Black Lives Matter, that hopefully, you know, some of these people that are marching with them peacefully are gays. Well, you in know? fact, this year, the Pride March was Queer Liberation March for Black Lives Matter and Against Police Brutality. And oh, so it, Okay. Yeah. So see that makes sense to me. Right. But you know, prior to that, I I'm sorry, I didn't know because because of COVID, I wasn't even sure. in New York City. Mm -hmm. So that makes me feel better that they're they are aligning themselves again with other, you know. But hopefully, I've always believed that you can make all the laws you want, but nothing is gonna change until people meet a gay person and work with them. So a lot of people, you know, that, that was my whole thing. That's why we worked with all these groups so that people who could see that we weren't devils, we weren't horrible people. We cared about everyone. I still care about everyone. So it hurts me when supposedly somebody of my community calls, calls me a trans exclusionary, I don't even know, feminist, I don't know what, because I'm, I, I, my desire is not to exclude anyone, but please don't tell me who I should love and who I should date and boo one of my members because they're pouring their heart out about being, how difficult it is to be a lesbian and then have the person that you love trans, become transgender you still love that person, but you're not sexually attracted to that person anymore. Don't boo that person. Give them some love, too. Well, That's all. Everyone has a right to love who they want. I mean, I can give you an opposite example of that. I was supposed to interview, and, and COVID shut it down, someone who, in fact, uh, kind of like you, was living a sedate, suburban, heterosexual life, and in her 30s, just somehow began to realize she was lesbian, dated, met someone, uh, married her, and within a few years, her husband began to realize, her, her wife rather, began to realize that in fact, she really identified as a man and went through transition to become a man. And she's getting ostracized by her lesbian friends because she's not leaving that husband and going out and dating a woman again. And she says, I fell in love with him. I can't help who I love. So some people make that transition, some don't. 
But the point is, it's, it's the right of an individual to love whoever they love and for no one else to question it, much less, much less denigrate them. I, I feel badly that those lesbians did that to her. See, that's the thing. I, I don't want to see anybody put down or made fun of. I mean, I think of the joy that we all had in the gay. We were, we were the weirdest bunch of people, you know, transvestites. Trans, there was no word transgender, drag queens, whatever, butch guys, you know. It just, the sex workers. We, we, we had our own alphabet salad. It just wasn't, didn't have any names with it. And we changed the world. We made it possible for some, you know, 12-year-old former girl can say, I'm really a boy, and not be excluded from life. We made that possible. Well, on that note, um, we've covered a lot of territory. Yes, I want we to have. Thank <laughs> we have a lot more to do, I guess, but I want to thank you not only for joining me and our audience today, but for everything you've done over the last half century, for all the progressive social work, activism, you know, and on behalf of farm labor, on behalf of the, the you know women, on behalf of lesbians, on behalf of the LGBT community, um, it's been a treasure getting to know you, and I can't wait for our audiences to learn all about everything you've done and we've talked about. Well, I thank you, Mike. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to sound off on everything. <laughs> well, you know what? We ha we've earned that right, right? That's right. That's right. I love them all. You know, I really do. And they're going to have to find their own way. And that's how I feel about this really, I, I love the really young generation. As I said, they're like, you know, they, well, I think they're, they're like my grandchildren is what I'm, I'm going to keep like. struggling for a way to reconnect and find community. And I'm going to bring it to you and you're going to work with me. Oh, so. great. Wonderful. That sounds great. All right. Thank <laughs> you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bammer and Me. And my special thanks to Michaela Griffo for joining us today. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nicola. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.